Hello and welcome to the newest edition of the Haskin Cast podcast. It is Christmas night and uh, it's been quite a day. Had a wonderful time at a friend's party, did a very early morning walk on the strip, had breakfast there and uh, came home, did some stuff, went to the party, came back, did some stuff and uh, just been working most of the day, but it's been a really good day. Taking uh, frequent breaks to say Merry Christmas to different people who've reached out and uh, had a really good time. So I hope that all of you had a wonderful holiday, whatever it is that you're celebrating, or if you don't celebrate anything, I hope you enjoyed a Tuesday where most everything was closed. Today on the show, I have a very, very dear friend of mine. We've been friends going on, uh, getting up to, to 30 years now. And we've been there through for each other for a lot of our musical endeavors, especially in the first, uh, I'd say, probably good seven or eight years. And then as, uh, you know, we kind of moved into different locations and things start to get a little bit distant, it's harder to work with people, or at least it was back then. And, uh, of course, now it's all different because I can work all over the world from the comfort of the studio in my bedroom here. So today, uh, talking to Travis Leroy, and we're going to talk about his current band, That 80s Band, who is an incredible, successful, very, very skilled 80s cover band in Denver, Colorado. And they played a few other places as well. And we're going to talk about his history going from the band he was in when I met him when I was, I think I was 17, and he was in a band called Salem Spade, which was a pretty progressive metal band, very, very intellectual, uh, especially for, for the time, because there weren't bands uh, like symphonic metal bands and things like that that, that had that level of technical uh, along with the melodic. And, and uh, really, really a, a band that I think uh, to this day, if they had been able to become more commercially successful... Uh, stands up to a lot of what I hear out there today, especially from uh, from the intelligence that they wrote their music from. And then uh, we're going to talk about some other things that uh, he went through in his career. And uh, it's, it's really, really fascinating because uh, honestly, Travis is one of the most talented, but also genuine people I've ever met. And, you know, he's honest, he's humble, he's very, very talented, very smart guy, but he's real. And I've always always respected and appreciated that about him and you know like I said we we were really good friends over the years and uh it's it's an honor to call him a friend so without uh without further ado let's bring Travis on the show That was a little bit of Castle Walls from Salem Spade. Let's get Travis on the show, the bass player and one of the writers on that song. Travis, how you doing? Hey, buddy. I'm doing great. How you doing? I'm doing awesome, man. Thanks so much for coming on the show, especially right right before Christmas. Well, it's my honor, man. I've, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts, and you do a fantastic job. And when you asked me to be on it, and I was like, of course, this is great. So thank you for having me. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, dude, we've known each other since right at the end of high school. You graduated a year before I did, and I met you right yeah. when my senior year was about to start. Uh, you were still playing in Salem Spade at the time, and my band, Joker's Wild, was opening for you guys at Grandma's Bingo Hall in Colorado Springs, <laughs> which sounds crazy, but that was actually a pretty cool place back in the day. It was, you know, and obviously you have a better memory than I do. That's that's one thing about you, man. So, like, you remember the names and all that stuff. 
I do remember the gig, and I remember playing with you. And yeah, that was a long time ago. So we've we've known each other forever. I don't know how much your your listeners know about you. I mean, you, you're you're such a nice guy, and you promote a lot of other people. But man, on top of the uh, the composing and the and the writing books and the voice work, you're an awesome drummer, man. So I don't know how many people know that, but yeah, I've heard you play many many times. You have. We've even jammed together, which uh, we, we got to do that again one of these days. Yeah, that would be awesome. Definitely. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. You know, I've always had great respect for you as a person and as a musician. And uh, interestingly, I was listening to my iPod uh, while I was driving around yesterday, and Pocketbook Beast uh, from Salem Spade randomly popped up. And I, I never realized, you know, bass players always seem like their, their job is really simple. They look bored. They they don't really seem like they're doing anything too difficult. But when you really listen to what you played, especially with Salem Spade, that was some incredibly technical work. Was that something that you really went about trying to make it difficult, or was it just what you felt or, or what came out? Well, that's a great question. You know, I mean, in stepping back a little bit, because a lot of people probably don't know Salem Spade. This was a, uh, a technical metal band back in the, the 80s, really, that I was part of. And um, I remember, actually, this is one of those things where you, you never know how big of an impact something's going to play in your life. But I was like 15 years old, and uh, I had this friend, Kevin. I think you know Kevin Emerson. Oh, yeah. And uh, he goes, hey, I'm, I'm in this band, Salem Spade, and they're, they're looking for a bass player and a drummer. Would you be interested? And I was like, yeah, of course, man. So... So, you know, uh, I auditioned for them, and I think I was, like I said, I think I was 15 years old. We were like kids, and Pat was the, the main guy, Pat Sternquist, who was like this incredible songwriter and great singer, and just a really nice guy. So, you know, he he was the main guy, and he hired me and uh, and Kevin. Kevin was even younger than me. I think Kevin was 14 or 15. It was nuts. Wow. And then, uh, uh, so, so we joined this band, and it was, yeah, definitely pushing things beyond the, the limits. But, um, you know, there was Scott Davies on drums, which I know you know Scott. Oh, yeah. And so these, these musicians were really um, incredible players, and, and we had a healthy way of kind of pushing each other. And, you know, we were always kind of pushing the boundaries of, of you know, technical, progressive metal. And, and so, you know, I'd, I'd watch these guitar players, you know, Pat and uh, Kevin would do these riffs that were just insane. And I was like, oh, my God, how am I going to play this? And then, you know, Scott's on the drums, and sometimes I just wanted to put my, date, my bass down and just watch this guy play. He was so amazing. So we just pushed each other and pushed and pushed. And so, you know, it was, it was like a healthy pressure to come up with something unique on the bass line, you know. And so we did that, and, and over time, I mean, the song that you mentioned was one of the later ones that we did. It started to get a little, <laughs> a little bit crazy where we'd actually look at each other and go, I can't believe we just pulled that off. But it wasn't maybe quite quite as musical as it could have been. But it was, uh, man, talk about a way to, to become a better player, playing with those guys. Yeah. Do you think that you haven't really been pushed as hard as a, as a writer? And of course, you're playing different style of music now, but do you find that with the other bands that, you're, that you've been in, you really weren't pushed as hard to be as technical or, or as challenged as, as you were in Salem Spade? Yes, I would say that's true. Um, but, you know, you, your your philosophies can change in life. And so when I first started playing, um, it, it's like, it's funny. Excuse me, to me, it's, it's, it's kind of funny because I actually started when I was like 12 years old. Mm -hmm. And I remember we, we, we had this band in junior high and we auditioned these guys. We had some guys come over to audition and we thought we were so great. 
And these guys just blew us out of the water, man. I was like, they, you know, we should have been auditioning for them, and they should have passed on us, by the way. They, they were so much better. So I go, you know, I got I to gotta learn how to play bass. And so I, I spent, you know, probably the next eight or ten years just focusing on, on bass, and that's all I did. You know, it was like technical metal. Then I got into jazz fusion, and I, I studied with a guy named Crew and Brown, who was a phenomenal bass player. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started teaching bass, and, and I did. And you know what? This is just the way the world works, man. Nobody cares about how good of a bass player you are, or like there's like one percent of the population or less that care. And so, if you want to be um, successful, like as a songwriter, writing very, very complicated bass lines isn't going to get you there in most cases. So I started to think about the song, you know, and, and um, structures and melodies and hooks and those sorts of things, which is, is kind of the opposite. So it's good to have the skills of the musicianship to do it, but, you know, it's not really utilized a lot in the, in the music that I played, you know, beyond that technical metal part of my life with Sit on Spade. You know, and that makes a lot of sense, because unless you're playing in, in like, a really progressive metal band or you're doing some fusion, it, it almost has no place in the song. It, right. It's more of a distraction than something that moves the song forward. And, and bass is like that uh, bridge between the melody and the rhythm. And if you're yep. not moving it forward, then something's out of place, and the song's probably not going to be as enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you you can do you could say that pretty much about any instrument. You know, it, it really needs to have its place. And uh, and you know, you can get too busy and, and too self self centered on what you're doing if you're, if you're not careful, and you're going to miss the point of the song if that's, if you're writing songs. I'm sure that's the same thing with you and your the music that you do. You know, oh, yeah. uh, if you're doing a soundtrack, you know. Your job, I'm, I'm sure, in a lot of cases, is not to be the, the, the focal point. It's, it's to create a mood or whatever. And so I'm sure you have to be super careful about every note that you put in there. That's a great observation, and that really is true, because really the job of a film composer is to create the underlying feeling more so than be specifically noticed, unless you have, say, a cue like the, the sound in Jaws, where it's the, the trigger to make you think that the shark is coming. Unless it's used like that, it's really just should be more felt than noticed. Yeah, yeah, good point. And we used to talk about that, um, like mood music, mm-hmm. you know, where you put in a, a CD and, uh, and and it just changes the mood of the entire room. You know what I mean? It's like music's so powerful that way. It really is. And, and when you think about things that trigger memories, you've got weather, you've got aromas, and you have music. Those are the yep. three things that'll bring back a memory faster than anything else. And... Man, I got to tell you, because we've known each other since before the war, and I, I've got so <laughs> many great memories, but I'll never be able to thank you enough for turning me on to Jazz Fusion. For Christmas, I want to say it was Christmas of 91, you gave me Inside Out by Chick Corea. Oh, nice. And that album changed my life right there. Yeah. That's great stuff, man. I mean, yeah, it's like because it, you were doing your own thing with drums at the time, and mm-hmm. you know, Dave Weckl's such an uh, awesome drummer. So, yeah, me too, man. I'm, I'm glad you you enjoyed that as much as I do. I listened to that the other day. Those guys are just ridiculous players, man. And you know, I think about it like I watched a video. There's a song uh, they do called "Got a Match," and uh, so I'm watching this live version, and it's just unbelievable. The guys are so good. They, they were in their 20s, man, when yeah. they were doing that. Yeah. Can you believe that? But well, if you think about it, look at how y- young you were when you were playing some really killer technical stuff in Salem's Bay. Well, thank you, man. 
yeah, it, it's fun, you know, learning an instrument's fun. And it's, it's kind of funny to hear you say that because, you know, these days I'm, I'm not necessarily known as like a, this technical bass player. There's a whole part of my history that not, not a lot of people know about because, you know, the music I do is much, much more pop oriented. And, and I'm, a, I'm a singer as much as a bass player now. So, right. but those were some great days, man. And, and yeah, I, I love, I still love listening to that stuff. And I kind of feel like, I'd like to get back into that to some degree, you know, just for fun. It's sure. it's tough to make that like a successful anything really, but it's just there's something nice about just you know playing bass or playing drums and just focusing on that. So yeah, we'll see how that goes. There definitely is. I mean, there's one thing when you're working on a contract or you're working for you know the gigs that you have lined up, and then sometimes you just want to write something that's different and just do a, a project for fun. And you know, yeah. when you get back into those roots that you've kind of set aside for a couple of decades, it's it, it can be really great, almost like coming home again. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a good, good way to put it. So the interesting thing about Salem Spade, though, is for a, a little underground band that came out of Colorado Springs, I mean, you guys were in a couple of fanzines and a couple of magazines, but uh, a few years ago, there was a, a group in Europe that contacted you about remastering the old tapes. How did that come about? Right, yeah, that was really cool. So, you know, again, the, the original Salem Spade stuff was in the 80s, and this is well before the Internet. So as you kind of mentioned, uh, you know, we, we had sent uh, our demo to a few magazines, and, and so I remember going into like a 7-Eleven or something like six months later and getting the, the new issue, and we were in it. They'd reviewed the demo, and I was like, oh, my God. Like, we didn't even know. We were just in there. And... um we had like our PO box listed there and we hadn't checked it because nobody ever wanted to talk to us. I mean, we were just like a local car. <laughs> right, and yeah. so I went there and checked it and it was like filled to the top with like letters from all around the world, you know, uh, Japan and, and Russia, which was a big deal back then to get anything from them. And there, there was money in there. They were like wanting to buy demos. And, and so it was this underground uh, trading scene. Like people would, would trade demos, you know, you would, um, literally just mail it on a cassette tape. Mm-hmm. And, and so we did, uh, we got known fairly well, uh, all things considered, back then. And, uh, you know, again, I got to say, was, Pat Sternquist was the guy. He, he was the, the, the main uh, brains behind that operation. I was just playing bass. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we did get known. And, and um, so that was really cool. And then, as, as you mentioned, many, many years later, um, a guy contacted me from Athens, Greece, and he had a record label, and he goes, hey, uh, would you consider letting us put out a Salem Spade album? And uh, I'm like, man, you know how many bands have happened since the late 80s to you know, yeah. 2010 or whatever it was? I mean, the fact that anybody would still remember and want to do it, I was like, of course, just let us, could you send us some of that? Because they actually made albums, you know, uh, vinyl albums Finally. and CDs. So I, I said, yeah, just send us a few copies, uh, absolutely. So, so they they put it out, and I think they did a thousand vinyl, and those all sold, and then some CDs, and it was just cool. So, it, 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 and you know, it's like one of those things. Like I have the, the the record frame in my studio, and all the guys in the band signed it and stuff, and everybody's got their own copy. So, it was really um, very nice that that somebody all these years later liked the music enough that they wanted to actually you know put it out. So. It was a really fun experience. It, it is. And I have to say, I mean, all biases aside, because I knew everybody in the band and I was friends with just about everybody. And uh, it, 
but that bias aside, you guys had music that was pretty fucking incredible for that time. Thank you. I mean, you guys were way above what everyone else was doing. And it wasn't just the technical aspect. I mean, they were very well-constructed songs, very intelligently yeah. written, very well-recorded and performed. I mean, you guys really had something special. But on top of that, the difference is you pushed yourself to market it. You didn't just do shows and hope somebody was going to find you like all the rest of us did. You guys pushed it to try and get noticed. Right. That's that. Thank you for uh, the, the nice words about the band. Uh, yeah, I think that was also one of the, the strengths of the band, you know. And like I said earlier, you, you never quite know when you have these great situations. But as I look back at that one, it was just like, what a, what a cool kind of first band um, to be in, mm-hmm. you know. And, and uh, you know, uh, with Pat and Kevin, they just wrote these incredible songs. And, uh, yeah, I was kind of the, the marketing business guy. I always, I've always had that part of me and stuff. So we, we all kind of were doing things that kind of kept pushing everything forward. And then it just turned into this really neat thing. You know, we were in high school, like I said. And yeah. We were, we were opening up for, like, Great White. And we got to play with Great's Warning, which was, like, our heroes back then. Mm-hmm. So we got to do so many cool things and great memories. Um and, you know, I still see those guys. We didn't talk about uh, John Seacrest, who was the singer, and yeah. unfortunately he passed away mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. But the rest of the guys, you know, we're, we're all in touch. They're very uh, special friends. Uh, Scott's up here um, in Denver doing really well on drums, and, and I still talk to Pat and Kevin, and, you know, so it's cool. And it was a very, very unique and uh, satisfying situation. Yeah, and I think that, uh, you know, certainly there's an element of luck in, in just finding the right group of people to work with, but to, to do it so young, and I think the things that you learn in a band like that, uh, there's a camaraderie that isn't going to be broken. But also, right. you take everything that you learn in any situation, and that carries with you, regardless of what you do. Yes, exactly. The challenge, I think, for you, and tell me if I'm wrong, but the challenge was what you did after that, because... I remember when the band kind of went its separate ways. And I mean, at that point, you guys are graduating high school. Kevin's going off to college and, and you know, everybody's kind of going their own way. But mm-hmm. when, you, when you tried to put new bands together, because you were rehearsing in my basement, and, you, and like every yep. week there'd be a different member and, you know, trying to just find <laughs> that magical combination of people. But do you think it was because you were in such a great situation that you were trying to recreate that level of magic or were you just not satisfied with what you were getting? Well, you know, I'll, I'll say this, um, after all of these years of experience, I can kind of look back and if you ever find yourself in a situation where you've got a band of, of good people and good players and a reliable and, and it's working and you've got that special something that you can't really define, really appreciate that because it does not happen very often. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I don't think that happens uh, even for really, really successful people. You'll see them do a band here and then they go to do something else and it, it just doesn't work. So I don't know how lightning strikes, but I know if you're lucky enough to have it, appreciate it and don't mess with it too much. So, yeah. you know, after after Salem State, there was lots of trying to not necessarily recreate that, that sound, but that kind of a, a success and, you know, friendship and it's tough you know it's it's really hard um you know uh, having a band is, is really really hard there's this a lot of people 
that have their own opinions and own thoughts and well, their own lives and obligations. So if you can get it together, it's tough. I mean, you do a lot of stuff yourself, so you're the guy, you know. Right. And as long as you can count on, on you, it's, it's great, you know. But, when you know, in a band situation, it's a little bit more challenging. So, yeah, we have people come and go, and, and there's there's a lot of flakes. There's probably a lot of flakes in every business, but, but it seems like in music there's more than their fair share of, of people that you can't quite rely on. So, yeah, you know, that was a time when I was trying to put things together and do that. But, you know, what I was really trying to do at that point was um, I was trying to, to land a, a, a role in a, in a national or an international band. So I really, really focused on, on the bass play, and I got a, a promo pack of just bass stuff, and I had an agent out in Los Angeles. And so, you know, uh, the promo, like, my stuff got to a band called The Cult, which I'm sure you've heard of. Oh, yeah. And um, let's see, Lita Ford and a band called Kingdom Come. Mm-hmm. King Diamond, we got it to King Diamond. Uh, and these people all, all responded, but you know, for one way, one thing or another, it didn't work out. Um, but I think the closest I got to getting that was there was a guy named Mark Ferrari who was in a band called Keel, and uh, he he had a new band called I think they're called Cold Sweat, and they were on Atlantic Records. And you know, it was the kind of thing where I think I could have got that gig, but I would have had to move to LA, and that was kind of scary to me at, at eighteen or nineteen years old. So, yeah. um, you know. So I focused on that for a long time, just try, just try to do that. And then, you know, there were some bands here and there along the way that we tried to put together, but nothing that really did too much. But I think it's it's pretty cool, especially at that young age, that A, you had the, the intellect and the wherewithal to get an agent that could get you into those doors, and B, yeah. that you had the skills and the presentation that people were actually responding to you instead of just going, who the hell is this guy, whatever, and blowing you off. Right. Yeah. I mean, the business part of it is, it's a whole other thing. And, that, and that's, that's the thing I think we've talked about before is you can be really good, you know, and not be successful. And you can be somebody that's not that great and luck into it and be successful. Right. It's like, in other words, there's not a direct path to success in the music business. It's, it's a really, really tough business. So, you know, um, you do the best you can and then hope for, hope for things to kind of come together as well. All I know is at that time, I was I, I wanted it so bad. I wanted to be famous and I wanted to make music and I wanted to be a, a professional musician. You know, I, I the, the, the reason it started for me is going back even further, uh, you know, my friend, uh, his name was Matt, his, he, he had all the cool albums back then. And I was listening to stuff like, I don't know, like, Prince and Duran Duran, and I still like those guys, but um, I remember he had this tape of his band Motley Crue, and I'm, I'm looking at this thing going, what? What are these guys, man? It was like so interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And then I started listening to them, and then, then I eventually ended up on uh, their tour. It was called Shout the Devil. I get front row. I'm standing in front of Nikki Six. The dudes, they, these guys were like 25 years old or something at the time. They were just hitting it. And I'm watching this, and I'm going, Oh man, that's what I want to do. Yeah. I mean, it just like it, and, and that kind of lit the fire. That kind of, I guess, I'm still in some, in some ways still doing today. But uh, you know, back then, I, I just I wanted that big time. And and, and really, if you're going to make it, you, you have to work really hard. I mean, there's there's some luck involved for some people also. But like, man, it's it's a, it's a business, as you know, man. We got to be 
hustling and working hard and you, you kind of almost do it every day, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a business that's a grind, and it seems like no matter how successful you get, how well-known you become, you're still fighting for that next venue, that next gig, that next uh, record company pro- to produce an album. There's no end to yeah. that part of it. I mean, you have to be hungry all the time. Yeah, you know, and that's okay. Some people don't want to push it that hard, and that's okay. Yeah. But if you want to really thrive and, and stay around long-term, yeah, you have to do that. Yeah. And and you have to work at your craft. It's 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 a balance between being a business person and being a musician because you have to keep up on your playing, your creativity, your writing skills, your engineering skills. But you also have to, to do the business side at the same time. So it it feels to me like the the more I do the business, the less I feel like a musician, and the more I do the music, the less successful I am because I'm not doing enough business. Dan, I can relate to you a hundred percent. I mean, these days. I, I do so much stuff that's not music. So much of the business and the marketing and the technical and running the equipment and driving trucks. Like I, I wear all these different hats and it's like playing bass. Man, that's like a very, very small part of what I do. But all the other stuff, like you said, it's all part of the package. You have to do it. You know, if you neglect one area, that, that could be enough to pull you down. So there's so many things you have to do. And I imagine a guy like you, because again, you're, you're the guy. You know, you are the everything in in your, your company. So you literally have to do everything or it won't get done. Yeah, that's true. And I'm very difficult to work with. So that doesn't make it any easier. <laughs> uh, I, sure. I want to get to that part because you're, you really wear, are wearing a lot of hats. I mean, you're even designing the light show yourself. You're, you're doing the rig yourself. I mean, you're really everything in that. But before we get there, I, I just want to take a step back. So after uh, you were working on trying to put these different bands together, uh, I think it was after that that you joined the band The Dark. Is that right? Yes, yes. That was, um, so I was in Colorado Springs, and Colorado's a, Colorado Springs is a, is a nice town, but it's pretty small. Yeah. And uh, unless you're Jag Panzer, you're probably not going to go very far. Right. Uh, so I was... Um, you know, down there and just realized it wasn't, I needed to do a little bit more, but I wasn't quite ready to move to LA. I heard so, so many horror stories of people going out there and just struggling. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, Denver, you know, that's kind of up the road. So let me, let me see what's going on up there. And, and I, I basically had some friends up here and I, I was like, who is the biggest band up in Denver? You know, who, who are these guys? Uh, and I got a couple of different lists, but one band that everybody talked about was this band called Ballard. And, uh, the cards kind of uh, aligned, or the stars aligned, I guess they say, and uh, and uh, they were looking for a bass player, and so I went and auditioned, and I got the gig. And for a while, I was commuting um, from the Springs to Denver, which is insane, because um, mm-hmm. you know driving driving two and a half hours for band practice is a bit much. Yeah. But um, so anyway, we we did this, and then we changed our name to the Dark, and uh, it was again one of those. Uh, lightning strikes moments where it was like uh, this phenomenal guitar player who wrote really great songs, a drummer that had a great voice and harmony and he wrote excellent lyrics and he was a great showman and then a singer that was like, kind of reminded me of the guy from Journey. He was just like really, really good players and really excellent songwriters. And so 
you know, I ended up moving up here, and we, we did some pretty cool things, you know. Uh, we, we had some pretty good success up here, and then we ended up getting a manager, and he flew us out to L.A., and we reported at a studio called, it was called Goodnight L.A. It was owned by Keith Olson. If you look him up, that guy did everything from Fleetwood Mac to the Eagles and Ozzy. We're, we're in that the same studio that those guys use. Right. And um, there's some really, really cool things up here. Um, and I think we got close to getting signed, actually, but we didn't. And so you know, a lot of the, the music business is ah, so close, and then poof, it just disappears. But... Um, that was a great band, man. And we had to do, uh, experience a lot of things, play big, big shows. Uh, we got to play with bands like, um, Cinderella and Dream Theater and Rat and, you know, a lot of the, the bands that were kind of big back then. So it was cool. Yeah. And, and it's kind of ironic because I was thinking earlier that if there would have been a band for Salem Spade to play with, I mean, you had some good gigs like Fate's Warning and that, but Dream Theater would have been a great band to open up for with that style of music you had. Yeah, I know. That would have been a much better fit, that's for sure. Now, you guys weren't signed, but weren't you endorsed by Miller? Yeah, we had an endorsement by Miller. I, I was endorsed by Mesa Boogie Amps on top of that, which was awesome. And then uh, Padula Bases. We had a lot of uh, endorsements because we did we did some pretty high-profile shows. And, you know, people wanted to have their product out there as, like, product placement stuff. But I remember I got... <laughs> I'm like, I'm endorsed by Mesa Boogie. Cool. What's the biggest amp they make? And so I ordered like two of those. And uh, I remember <laughs> I, I got it in my truck after a gig. My, my uh, roadie helped me get it in there. And then I drove home, right, after a gig. Because uh, they delivered it up to the studio up in Denver. And it was so heavy, I couldn't even get it out of the car. I was like, oh, my God, I'm leaving this beautiful <laughs> amp outside. Because it was like so heavy, man. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was a good time, man. Yeah, they had a good sound. I, I do like the Mesa Boogie sound, and, and but it's pretty incredible to me that you guys had those kind of endorsements without having an album out. Right. It, like I said, it was a you know Denver's a bigger market, and it was a very popular band. I, I don't think uh, you know there were many bands that were playing more shows or bigger shows than us at the time, mm-hmm. and the scene was actually pretty good um, back then. There was more live, like original live music clubs, and so you could you could do. 10 or 12 shows up here without, you know, oversaturating as long as you had a good product. Right, exactly. And, and of course, that's all changed now because so much is automated and DJ and that kind of stuff. It's really tough for a band nowadays to get, you really need to learn by playing on stage. You really need to play in front of crowds to really learn that side of your craft. And there just aren't as many opportunities to do it. Yes, sir. That's exactly right. I mean, It'd be tough. I, I don't know. I don't even know how, how people will do it now because you're right. You have to, there's really not a shortcut, you know, and even if you practice with your band in the basement for a lot of times, it, it's different when you're on stage. You just have to do it many, many times and it's, it's a whole different way of playing. So, uh, you know, now, nowadays it's, it's, uh, it's harder. It's much harder. There's, there's so much competition with like DJs. You know, uh, you know, that's more popular than dance in, in a lot of circles. And so, you know, it's it's tough to find places where you can go out and play these days. It is. And I'm really hoping that that's a fad that's going to go back to original music at some point. I have to think that people are going to start yearning for that again. I hope so. Yeah. Well, before we go any further, let's listen to Molly by the Dark. Molly is 
Okay, that was Molly. Thanks for uh, sending that over, Travis. Really good to hear that again. It's been a long time, so it's a great, great memory there. Yeah, thank you. After that, now Junior uh, was the drummer in The Dark. Is that is that right? Yes. Yeah, that's where you met him, and then you formed a new band. Uh, that was another band that I really enjoyed, and you guys did go into the studio for that one, and you recorded uh, a full album, if I remember right. I think we did a... Like, uh the equivalent of a full album, yeah. That's that was back in the days um, before. Like, if you wanted to record something, you had to go to a studio. They didn't have like home studios like we have now with Pro Tools and stuff. So we did some stuff, and that's. Uh, I'm glad you brought that pro- project up because you were part of that. Uh, in fact, I was. Uh, you helped me a lot on uh, some sequencing, and the, I sequenced the drums 100 percent on that album. Mm-hmm. And I think that was on your keyboard, wasn't it? It was, Mike Corgan. Uh, uh, X2, I think I had at the time. X3, I, I had, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So thank you uh, again oh, yeah. for all that. Yeah, that was you and Brian at, uh, I can't remember the name of the studio, but... Uh, we did it at Free Reeling, wasn't it? Free Reeling, yeah, yeah. So that was cool. And, you know, that, that again, that was a band that was like, had all the ingredients of it should have been successful. It had... Uh, Junior, the, guy, the drummer from the Dunn, excellent guy. Uh, Pat Searcy, which is an incredible guitar player in town. This bass player named Rich Ross, who's unbelievable, was in there. Mm-hmm. Scott Davies played drums. Uh, we had uh, Tom Geary doing these electronic industrial stuff. It was like a, a really great group of people. Yeah. And uh, it just was okay. You know, like, I mean, it just it ended up just doing okay, I should say. I, I liked the band very much, but. You know, we opened up for, for Rob Halford on one of his uh, tours. He was uh, with Fight, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I didn't even know how awesome that was back then. I mean, Juice <laughs> Priest, I love those guys so much. But, like, so we did that. But it just never really quite, you know, it never took off. It's just one of those things that, in this business, like I said, you can have all the ingredients, but if lightning does not strike, man, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not going to happen. I will say, though, that you guys were great to watch live. I remember there was a gig in Denver. It was during a blizzard. It was upstairs above a strip club downtown somewhere. And it was, it was actually a pretty cool venue. But the, one of the most enjoyable things was watching Tommy play because that guy put every bit of energy he had into every single time he hit anything. Hair flying, yeah. just like, full, like he was trying to murder something. <laughs> yeah, he was one of my great friends back in those days. I, I, we still talk, but uh, it's uh, he was so so great to work with. Yeah, you're right. He was like all into it, man, and and he was like the, the comic relief back then. I, I tend to be the guy that takes things too seriously sometimes, but yeah. he always just had a good time and just lived for the moment, man. So yeah, I miss working with that guy. But the the thing with you though, yeah, I mean, guys like you and I, because we have to carry so much of the business, I do tend to miss out a little bit on the fun because we're our minds are constantly going on what else we need to do. But yeah. for you and me, I mean, the weight of everything pretty much falls on our shoulders. 
True. So it's hard not to, yeah. you know. That was a fun band, and, and even to this day, I love that that tape. I had so much fun working on that project. Uh, I was there with you guys in the studio for the first day you were recording, and uh, those songs, I mean, for me, maybe it's because of the memory or, or an association that I have, but those songs still stand up for me today. Thank you. Yeah, I, that was uh, that was a really fun uh, project. That's I was trying to do, like, um, more song-oriented, but I also liked the industrial-type vibe and it was kind of going on back then a little bit too like the nine inch nails and stuff like that mm. but uh yeah it was it was really fun i have a uh like a documentary i filmed i was smart enough back then to, to record that because you know nowadays everybody records everything but back then people didn't think about it so i still have those memories captured of, of the studio and, and brian co i know you just saw brian recently did, the yeah. sound engineer he's such a great sound engineer and a great guy he's like I, we call him like the Colorado Scott Haskin. You know, I mean, <laughs> you guys are just like the coolest dudes. And Thanks, um, so, yeah. And, it, you know, I, I hadn't seen him. Like there was this big gap in uh, in times that I'd seen him. And then he started, uh, we started working with him, I don't know, maybe, I can't remember the time. Five Within the last five or eight years, he started coming and doing some stuff with us. And he's a great guy, man. So he, he did all of the, the recordings that I've ever done as far as like my personal projects he was the guy we always went to mm -hmm, exactly and you know uh, i have to thank you for introducing me to him because he came down when you were rehearsing in my basement he came down from denver and hung out mm -hmm. with us one night and that was when i met him and then when i moved up to denver uh, i started apprenticing with him as an engineer and i've yeah. learned more about audio engineering from that guy than any combination of classes i've ever taken gigs i've ever done uh, you know, and I've done a lot of audio engineering over the years, but it, it, it all comes down to what I learned from Brian. It, that guy's just... Isn't a, he great? He's a paragon of knowledge. Yeah, he's so cool. And then when we work with him, he's just like, he's one of those guys that just gets the whole thing. Like he, whenever we do something with Brian, man, he, he thinks of every little thing that could potentially go wrong, and then he makes sure it doesn't go wrong. Yeah. I just love working with that guy. Yeah, he, he's well well ahead of any problem that could occur. And if something unforeseen does happen, he's got it solved in a nanosecond. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. And the, the most important thing, though, is that he understands what a band should sound like. You know, he, mm -hmm. he knows the balance of kick to snare to bass to guitar to vocal. And, you know, I, I, I live in Vegas, man. I go to some really cool shows, and, and i got to tell you, there's not a lot of shows I've come back from where I thought, man, that sound was killer. Right. Yeah, he knows how to do it. Well, like in the current band I'm in, he, he dialed in our sound. that We, we use all of his EQ settings and all that. So he's, he's uh, yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. Now, before you recorded with Brian up at Free Reeland, though, you had started to work on your own, and you wrote a, a handful of songs and recorded them in, was it Monument, Colorado? God, man, your memory is just unbelievable, Scott. I mean, <laughs> I, I can't even remember some of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, we did something up there, and uh, yeah, you were part of that, too. Yeah. Yeah, you, you helped us out on that one. Yeah, I can't even remember the band at the time. I remember you being there, and... I think Scott Davies came up and did some drums, and I think Pat Strankless played guitar. Coming back to me a little bit here. I think Pat played on some, and I think Kevin did some for you, too. Yeah, yeah. And that was just like back in those days where it was such a production to, to record. I mean, yeah. it was like, like I think it was like 40 bucks an hour, and it always took many, many hours to, to do that. And, and I was like basically a kid, so that like adds up super, super fast. So you have to really believe in 
what you're doing. You know, if you're going to do that nowadays, you can record in your home studios, which I think great, by the way, that people have that ability. But back then, man, it was like you had a little four-track tape maybe or, or you had to go to a real studio if you wanted to get something out. Yeah, and, and those were some pretty cool places that we worked at too. And But I remember we, we recorded uh, drums and bass the first night and then I was at work. I was working at Colorado College and I got a call from Scott saying, we have to go back and I need to borrow your drum kit again. And I said, why? What happened? And the engineer had erased the drum tracks by mistake. Uh. And so we had to go back and do it again. But I also remember you started with a different singer. And that was where, I think this was one of the key projects in your life because you weren't really happy with it. It was decent, but it wasn't really, didn't have that power that you wanted. And I remember you and I had a long talk one night and you said, I think I'm going to try and sing it. And then you right. did, and that was really the first time that you started singing. And because and, you were kind of a really private, introverted person, I mean, you had your friends, you had your close group, but you were really like not somebody who I would have thought of as being a front man because you're you were kind of shy. But right. you you went in, man, and you you put everything you had into it, and I really think that was a pivotal project for your career. You know, I, I, the way you say that, I, I, I agree with you. I think that's right. Um, Back, you know, back in those days, I was, I was a bass player. I mean, that's like we've talked about. I, all I cared about bass, man. I would play like every day after school and, and, and on the weekends, I was that guy that would get up at eight in the morning and I'd play till midnight. I mean, I just like all I, all I wanted to do was play bass. But as I started putting bands together, you know, you, you start thinking about the song and then we were trying to find a singer and I just had the hardest time finding a singer to the point where I was like, all right, forget it. I'm just going to sing. I'm just going to learn how to sing and do it. And let me tell you, I was terrible when I first started. Like, I had no idea what I was doing. I could, like, kind of bark out some James Hetfield type uh, stuff for maybe four songs, and then my voice would be just trashed. I mean, yeah. if that's the kind of singing career, you do that, you could do that for maybe, like, 12 months and you're done. I mean, so luckily over time I, I learned some techniques, but, like, I was, it was out of just like um, desperation and frustration because I, I couldn't find a singer. So we would do that. You know, I remember like with Brian, the engineer, I'd be like, hey, dude, okay, I'm going to sing on this. But let's, like, if you're supposed to turn the vocal up to like eight, when you mix it, turn me down to like a six. Like, just like you can kind of, you know, because I didn't want it to, you know, to be like ruined or anything like that. Yeah. But, you know, I guess that it goes to show because I've been singing for many, many years now. Um, you know, if you practice, you can get better, you know, that's, so that's kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, when I listen back to some of that stuff, cause you know, I've got all that stuff on, I, I've digitized it all, but, uh, I, I listen back to it and I'm like, man, you know, for, for your first foray as a vocalist and really not having any kind of vocal training, not knowing how to, how to uh, take care of your voice, how to work it really to, to get power without using a lot of energy. Like you sounded pretty damn good for, for that being your first, just, I'm just doing this and just jumping in. Because I think it was like Thank the, you, the night before we went into the studio, you're like, man, I just just don't like what I've got. I think I'm just going to do it. And we had a long talk, and it was like the next day we went back up there and, and recorded it. Yeah, that's yeah, I, I do remember that. And it's, it's like, it's, it makes you like very, it made me very nervous at least. You know, when you're singing, man, it's like under a microscope, and uh, you can't you can't be shy. You know, you can be a shy bass player or a shy keyboard player but man if you're singing man it's it's like right there so yeah i don't know so much anymore though because it just seems like everybody scrutinizes everything everyone does 
Yeah. Well, nowadays, like, you, you know what I mean? Like, you, if you're just like a timid singer, it's like going to be very obvious. But yeah. uh, I, I don't know. Sing, sing is a whole other thing. Uh, for I think me. You, you feel more the focal point because the lyrics are kind of when the singer's singing, everybody's watching the singer. They're not paying attention to the guitar player or the drummer anymore. It's like, okay, now this guy's talking, so we need to pay attention to what he's doing. Right, right, I, I, exactly. Uh, the singers do get a, a lot of attention. It's just like one of those things that, you know, you can't, you're not going to change that, you know. But I'll, I'll tell you, like, nobody hardly ever comes up, oh, dude, nice bass playing. Like, I never <laughs> right. hear that. But they'll, they'll say something about the vocals, you know. Yeah. Yeah, well, you probably, like, as a drummer, I mostly heard from other drummers. That was pretty cool. You know, like, yeah, I, yeah. I didn't hear from a lot of, you know, hot girls or anything like that. It was pretty much the drummers that would come up to me after the show. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, be- before we get too much further, I, I-, I wanted to play uh, The Myriad while we were talking about uh, Disintegration Factory was the band that uh, you did the documentary with. And uh, this this is a great song. Uh, it- it's one of those songs that just really has a good groove. It moves forward. Your voice sounds fantastic on it. And, uh, and this was really one of your earlier vocal projects. So uh, thanks for sending this one over. This is The Myriad by Disintegration Factory. Yeah, that's that's still to me a, a great song. You know, even the, even though like so much of that was recorded uh, off the, the sequencer, and that was really just to save studio time because you know, like you said, we're paying like forty bucks an hour. We're you know we're not rich people. We're we're not having record companies funding that. That's all out of our pocket. So you try and cut yep. as many costs while still getting a good sound, and I think it came out great. Thanks, man. I like that one too. Yeah, and and incidentally, I don't know if you if you realize this or not. But uh, when I was working for ProSound, they gave me a project of recording a, uh, a voice system for when people were put on hold. And uh, I brought a bunch of gear home from work, and you and I were roommates at the time. And the very first CD I ever burned was that tape. Oh, is that right? Yeah, and we compared it. I think we did like an A-B test with, I want to say it was like Master of Puppets or something to, to make sure like the levels were good and everything. But yeah, that was the very first uh, thing I ever burned to see. It wasn't even my own stuff. It was yours. Oh, that's nice, man. Well, I still have that the, the burned copy, which is so great because, again, like maybe younger people that are listening to this wouldn't remember this. But like back in the day, man, it was like it was on tape. If the tape went bad, you're done. Yeah. So to be able to put it on a CD is really great. And now, of course, you know, I've got it on my website and everything. So it's, it's preserved forever, which is really cool, man. You've done that for me on a, a few of my projects, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's, it's always a joy, you know, and uh, when I can provide something to somebody, you know, especially some that I respect and, and everything, it's great. But to, to give you a reference of exactly when that happened, South Park was just about to air the April Fool's episode of Terrence and Philip instead of revealing who Cartman's father was. <laughs> Again, the memory on this guy. Yeah. Please. I, re- I remember we sat on your couch and we watched that and we were all excited for it because that, that was the very first South Park episode I ever saw was the yeah. first part of the Cartman one. And, and you were like, hey, watch the show with me. And so we watched it. And of course, you know, all week I'm like, well, who's this guy's father? 
And then this, the right. next week came on and it was Terrence and Phillip. I'm like, screw this show, man. I've had one roommate in my entire life, and it was you, and I think it was for just a handful of months, but yeah. I got to see kind of how you operate, dude. I've never seen anybody work so hard. You would like, you would go to your music job, like a pro sound or whatever you do, mm-hmm. you would come home, say hi, and then you would just disappear in your studio, and I, I, I saw you for like 47 minutes over the last <laughs> the six months, that we were, and you were just always working. Yeah. Yeah, I, I honestly don't even remember eating. I, I don't remember ever making a meal in that kitchen. No, you were you were just always working. And, and you know, I guess that kind of proves the point we were talking about earlier, that if you want to have success in this industry, you have to really, really want it. You have to be willing to work that hard. And, I mean, you do it all the time. It becomes a part of, of what you do, you know? Well, thank you. You know, it, it's, it's interesting because recently I've had uh, a few people get angry with me because I haven't spent time with them. And while I appreciate them wanting to, uh, you know, share time together, and, and it would be nice if we could, but I've got a certain uh, number of projects that need to get finished in a certain time frame. And then, of course, with the podcast, uh, that's keeping me incredibly busy. So it's, you know, it's, it's frustrating because you, you want to make everybody happy and you care about your friends. You want to be able to hang out with them. But there's really like, this is my life. This is everything I am. It's not a job. It's not a gig. It's, this is it. It's what I, it's what I am. It's not what I do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, let me ask you this because I, and I, I, I agree with what you just said. And I've, I've really noticed more, you know, as I've gotten older that you, you don't have enough time to do it all. That's mm-hmm. the sad thing. Do you still have that same passion, that same fire that you did, say, 20 years ago, that you just, this is, you have to do this? It's like not even a choice. It's just like, this is what you do. Or has that changed at all? I think it's gotten more so. Um, more? Okay. Yeah, as, as you see some elements of success and you see that, that the things that you do are reaching people and that it's having an impact on them, I think that adds another element because when you're just doing it because you love doing it and you put stuff out there and no one really seems to find it or, or care, you keep doing it because you enjoy doing it. But when you're starting to get some kind of feedback and you see somebody posted a review or somebody says, oh my God, you know, I, I, I love your stuff. I fall asleep to your relaxation music every night or something like that. Like that really drives you to another level that you didn't even know was possible. Mm-hmm. Because you think, like, no matter what you're doing, you think, I can't possibly do any more than this. And then you find that gear. And you're like, holy right. shit, I wish I would have known about this 10 years ago. You know? But yeah, yeah I, I, would say, okay. I would say even more so now. And especially now that I have, you know, I don't have to pay $40 an hour to go to a studio because it's in my house. Yeah, it's so great having that technology. Yeah. Well, that's interesting to me. And, and I, I think that's the thing for... Uh, if anybody ever asked me my advice about being in the band, it's like, or, or doing music, maybe even anything, you know, don't do it because you want to make a bunch of money or don't do it because you want to get up a lot of attention. You have to, you have to work so hard if yeah. you want to do this. I mean, and it, it's just like on and on and on. And it's not, it's not glamorous a lot of times, man. It's just so much work. But if you, if you have that passion for it, you, you will enjoy it. But if you don't have a passion, if you're just doing it for the money or whatever, you're going to hate it because there's so much you have to do if you really want to, you know, excel in this business. You're, you're dead on, man. And here's the thing. You talked earlier, and, and I've certainly experienced this too, about, you know, flaky people in the business. And I think that's a big part of why. 
I think that, it, you know, it always comes off as so glitzy and glamorous, like being an actor. Being an actor is mostly sitting in a chair waiting for your time, whether it's you're having your hair and makeup done or you're being fitted for your, your costume or your outfit. You're sitting down about 95% of the time and acting maybe 5%. And, right. But it all looks so glorious that people want to do it. And then when they get inside of it, and they're like, oh, this, this is not fun at all. It's, there's a lot of stuff that's not a lot of fun about it, but it's all, you know, it's all necessary. Mm-hmm. Man, and I know you've seen that movie Spinal Tap, oh, yeah. but you have to like, uh, there's been some people in my band, a couple of the female vocalists that I've hired, that they, they, they were never in bands before. And um, I could show them Spinal Tap and they'd, they'd go, what is this? I don't. And then if they're in the band for like a year or two, they laugh so hard because <laughs> it's like, that's how it is, man. Yeah. There is so much ridiculousness in this. Yeah, it's a comedy, but it's not at the same time. Like for people who really get it, it's not that funny. <laughs> I got to watch that again thinking about that. Yeah, it's just like, it's the way it is if you're in a band. Yeah. You know, I think, uh, you know, and, I, and I've talked about this very topic on the show before, but I, I think that Ian Pace uh, from Deep Purple really put it the best. He said, you know, uh, a couple hours a night, I get to be that 15-year-old kid that, that just enjoyed playing drums. And that's why I do it, because I get to be a 15-year-old kid again every night. Yeah. But the thing is, if you're like, if you're in a touring band, especially where you're, you're not home all the time, you're, you're in the, around the world 85, 90% of the year, you've got to figure out what to do with that other 22 hours of the day. Right. And it's not always convenient to, you know, write music while you're on the road or, you know, it's, it's, you're, you're missing your family, you're missing other things. It's, it's really a dedication, and that's something that if you... If you don't find enough enjoyment in that two hours to manage the other 22 hours, you just shouldn't do it. Yeah, exactly. And, I, you know, the, the guys that you're talking about are on a, a level that nobody gets to. I mean, I certainly have never gotten ever close to that. But I did a tour with this band called Orgy, and I, we were an opener. But we, we toured, I think we did seven or eight shows across the Midwest. So I got a, a feel for what that was like. And, Besides that, like he, he engaged from Deep Purple saying, you know, the show, and then there's the 22 hours. Those guys have a great situation. We were like a, a, on a much smaller tour, uh, and we were the opener. And I'll tell you, our, our day was like you drive and you sit, and the three bands that are like headlining above you, they get all their sound checks, and then you get to go up there. You got 20 minutes line check, you do your show for 30 minutes, and then. You watch the band, and then you get on the road, and you drive to the next city. So when yeah. you start doing the math of like you're in Minneapolis, and then your your next show is in Wisconsin, there's not like a lot of time. You know, we were sleeping in a van, and and I did that for like it's like a week or two, and I I, I ended up making though so that's the good news. I made like minus five hundred dollars for, for all of that. <laughs> wow! <laughs> so, so I got it. it was, I love that I got to see what it was like, but man, that's like these and these guys are like they're very passionate. Man, if you're willing to work that hard to do it, man, you know you must love it. And if you're not willing to work that hard, you're going to get lunch eaten by these guys that really want to do it. Because there are people that sacrifice everything to do this. Yeah. Now, granted, those guys, you know, they they may have to take the bus or or a plane, but they get put up in nice hotels. They're not they're not slumming it in a van anymore. But they went through that too. Um, right. In fact, I was just listening to a podcast with Ian Pace not long ago, and back when they did their very first gigs, uh, he and the, the keyboardist, John Lord, 
their visas didn't uh, come through in time for them to do the show in the country that they were playing in. And they got mm-hmm. hauled off to a police station in the back of a dog cart until Jeez. it all got sorted out. And you look at where they are now and you think about that and you're yeah. like, man, they stuck with it. Yeah. Yeah, I think all those big bands pretty much have stories like that. Because it is a, what is that ACDC song? It's a long way to the top, man. It's, uh, and, and most people don't get there. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Now, now let's kind of catch up to where you're at now, though, because your, your career has, has really taken off. And I think that that idea that you had back in the 90s of putting a band together that was doing covers has now become an actual thing. And you've been quite successful with your, your new venture, that 80s band, uh, how long have you guys been playing now? I think we're about ready to hit 16 years, oh my which God. is like 100 years in band years. Yeah, yeah, that's that's almost unheard of success for a cover band. Yeah, it is, it's been a really great run for sure. Yeah, and you've played some really big shows. I mean, you guys have been flown out to other states and played for big rallies and things like that. Uh, obviously, you know, there's, there's a spark to 80s music. There's a... a a love for it that people don't have for other generations. Mm-hmm. Is that what what kind of attracted you to, to that being the start of what you wanted to do? Well, you know, if I step back just a little bit, so after I, I'd kind of done my original music um, and realized just how brutal the business is and how there was no guarantee of anything, I uh, I think I actually... I think I just retired. I go, I'm, I'm, I'm too old. I'm 27 years old. It's time to get on the rocking chair and, and stop this. So I quit playing music. And then like a year later, I'm like, I, I can't. What, what am I doing? I, I got to somehow do something. So um, I, I started uh, a cover band. And honestly, Scott, I, I don't remember. I think I probably had two or three different cover bands I tried. And, um, you know, they were just, they were just fine. There was nothing special about them. We were good players. We played, this, you know, and everybody was like, "Oh man, if, if you do this, you got to play these songs." So we would do it. We played some some bars, and uh, yeah, it's just nothing. You know, we're playing in front of ten people on a on a Tuesday night. You know, nothing, no success at all. And then I started looking at it, and they go, um, "Well, if you really want to do it, you have to get into corporate stuff." But those guys, you know, no offense to any of them, but they they all were like tuxedos and were always smiling and dancing. This was not me. I was like, I, I can't do this. That's yeah. like that's just not who I am. So I'm like I'm like, maybe I'll try I love eighties music. Let me try some eighties music. And I talked to some people and some agents and they were all like, Eh, it's probably not gonna work, dude. So, um but I, I wanted to do it. So I tried it and there was there's a few different incarnations of it. I, I really can't quite remember how the first people and all that stuff, but I remember what I can kind of consider version one was um, pro- I programmed all the drums, kind of like we did in that in the classroom. We had two girls that were backup singers, and then we had five to turn on my face and my vocals. And I went out there, and man, did it flop. It was like the worst thing ever. It got zero interest. Really? And I almost folded. I almost folded, but I learned a very valuable lesson in, and that was like lesson one. If you're going to be a band, you definitely have to have a drummer out there, unless you're a rap band, maybe. But like, people want real drums. You know, they can be an electronic kit, but they need a drummer. So we kind of retooled it, started the band, and then it's it started to take off. You know, it started to do pretty well, and we built, you know, from here to there, and 
kept adding new things, and it's turned into much, much more successful than I could have ever hoped for. That's that's for sure, and it's going stronger than ever. I mean, we we could play 150 shows a year if we wanted to, and, and I, I just that would bring me out. So, but we still do close to 100 shows a year. So it's really a great situation yeah and and not little shows i mean you guys are playing i mean some of the shows are a little bit smaller but you guys are playing to like you know 10 15 000 people sometimes we we have played to that big i mean we were very fortunate i mean denver is um, um i'd call it like a medium-sized market but i still think there's there's three million ish around denver and boulder and the surrounding areas and uh from what i'm told you know by the place we play with with a top draw and that's pretty cool, you know. I mean, it's, it's as good as you can get uh, yeah. in in Denver. And uh, we we do clubs. I mean, we don't usually plan for ten to fifteen thousand people, but if we do a summer show, we've had five thousand people show up, and and more than once we've had that happen. And and at the clubs, there's usually a line to get in, so we, we fill into capacity. It's it's really really great. And trust me, I know how fortunate we are because I just told you about we played in front of ten people for nothing. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. It's, yeah. it's like, it's really, really great that we get to do this after all these years. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing like hauling all the equipment out to a venue and then having no one show up and playing anyway. Right. Or, you know, but but still, 10 people showed up, and you got to give those 10 people a show. Sure. It's not their fault that no one else came. Yeah, you should always do your best show for sure. But uh, it's, it's really good. And, and just to kind of uh, put a bow on that last story about um, why I started it, and so, so I go, you know, I'm not the, uh, the, the tuxedo-wearing, smiling guy. Uh, I'm going to do something that I love. And I think that right there is the, the, the secret sauce to this band is that um, we love doing it. So we're, it's like a legitimate thing. There's some 80s bands, they like, oh, the 80s is big now. So let's put on, you know, a, a polo shirt and put the collar up and some sunglasses and voila, an 80s band. <laughs> right, you know, yeah. it's like... It's like so. We anyway. We've put so so much more thought into it, and and we love, you know, we love the music and the whole thing. So we try to recreate it like as authentically as we possibly can. But I think the the key to, or at least one of the keys to that, is that now I haven't gotten to see you guys live yet. But but when I watch the clips of you guys, you guys look like you're enjoying what you're doing, and I think that's a big difference. I think the audience feels that. Like, I recently saw uh, Michael Schenker was here in Vegas playing at the House of Blues earlier this year, and he brought all his singers back. Graham Bonnet was there, uh, Gary Barden was there. And the great thing about it was that they all seemed like they just wanted to be there, like they were enjoying every moment. It wasn't, oh, God, I'm tired. We just played in L.A. last night. Now we got to play Vegas. All right, I'm, I'm going to get out there and give the best show I can. It was, we want to be here, and you guys present that as well. Well, thanks for noticing that, and I, I agree with what you said there. You know, we talked earlier about that, that people don't get an opportunity to, to play very much because it's, it's a tough industry and there's not a lot of venues that will have bands. If you get to the point where you get to play, and we're, we're there, where we could play, we're offered more than we can play, you run the risk of what you just talked about there, of that burnout of, like, let's get through this gig, and to me, if you get there, that's the death of your band because the crowd can sense that. Just like you sensed that those people wanted to be there, if they didn't, you would sense that. So, man, I, I try to start off, like before every show, I, I try to spend a, a little time just reflecting on how lucky 
am I that I get to go and perform? Man, people came out to see our band play. They could have done anything. They could have gone to see another band or gone to a movie or stay up. They came out, man. How lucky. So I always try to remember that. And I sometimes I'm more successful than others. You know, we're all human. But the, the, the main point is if you get a chance to be on that stage, don't ever forget you're very, very blessed to be able to do so. Absolutely. I'm really glad that you said that because if you think back on the Salem Spade days, I mean, we played a gig, what, every five or six months? And it was, yes. oh my God, we got a gig. We're, we're playing at Renner's Bar. We're playing Grandma's Bingo Hall in, in June. And yeah. it was the most exciting thing in the world. And, and, you know, it was hard to get gigs back then. And yeah. now, I mean, to be able to go out as often as you are, and you think back to, you know, but, but it's still that every gig means just as much to you as it did back then. That says mm-hmm. a lot about how much you really do appreciate what you have. Uh, because otherwise it would just be, all right, well, you know, we're going to play on Thursday, then we're playing Friday, and then we got this thing on Sunday. All right, and then, you know, yeah. then I got a day off. I mean, it just, for you to be able to to zone in on that and really appreciate every show that you're doing, yeah, I mean, we're all human. Some days you're going to be a little more tired or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. have to push it a little harder. But, I mean, if the fact that you haven't lost sight after 16 years of doing yeah. this band that says a lot about how much you really do enjoy what you're doing. And, and obviously the people that you're working with must, yeah. must enjoy as well. It is a great group of people that I work with. Uh, most of them have been with me for many, many years. And uh, it's, yeah, it's, that's, you know, you have to have people that are talented and reliable and nice people. As, as many shows as we do, you got, you know, and, the, and they're like my best friends, the people in the band. So, uh, I keep I keep referring back to this when lightning strikes type thing. This is number three for me that, that's happened in my musical career, and uh, it's great, you know. And I, I'm I'm totally aware. Like I could decide to go do another band after this, and then it could be the best players and the best this and that, and not have what this has. I mean, it's, it becomes a thing at some point. Like I can, I can't even understand sometimes. I'm like. Oh, all these people came out. I can't believe it. Like, I'll be like, one of these going to show up tonight. And then, like, I'll look at them and I'm like, oh my God. It's like, I don't even, I can't even quite explain it, but I'm so thankful that we get to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's a, that's a very, very incredibly long run for a cover band of any time. And I don't, I think if you depict any other genre or time frame of music, I don't think that you would have sustained 16 years. There, there really is something magical about the 80s. But, in in conjunction with that, it, there's something magical about that '80s band. Yeah, thank you, man. It's it, I'll tell you, um, it's it's been so much work. Like you, you'll understand this completely, but it's like it's it's the the little things that I've done over time that I think really add up. Um, people don't necessarily see that. It's like so, like you can build a light show. And get it there, and it's ninety-five percent good, right? And you spend all this time. I'm the guy that'll like spend just as much time again. I'll spend twice as much time to get it that five percent better. You know what I mean? Right. Moving the like aiming the moving head two inches this way on this part of the song, changing the light pattern, just slightly turning down the blue and that back truss. Like this kind of stuff that really it kind of annoys me sometimes that I'm so focused on all of that. But right, yeah. I think you do this stuff, all these things over time, and it builds up. And maybe it's not any one thing that's noticeable, but all together, it becomes this thing that kind of comes across pretty cool. 
Well, there's that, but I think, don't you think too that there's also a psychological factor for yourself? Because if you know you're playing a song and you know when you get to that last chorus, you know, I'm just not happy with that light. And mm-hmm. it's that somewhere floating in your head. Yeah, you're still going to give a great performance, but when that when the lighting is perfect, when it, when all the circumstances and the settings around you are perfect, it, you, yeah. you find a way, you, you're going to enjoy playing that song more, which, again, the crowd will feel and experience, and they'll enjoy it more, too. That's a, that's a great point, actually. I think you're right. And it's the, the one thing also is, like, me personally, I'm always learning at every show. Like, I'll, I'll sit there and I'll go, hey, this song goes into this song really nicely, but if you do this song into that song, it doesn't work. Or if you stop for three seconds in between this song and that song, they stay on the dance floor. If you stop for four seconds, they start to leave. All these little things, I'm always always trying to make it like just a tiny bit better at every show. And I, I don't know, like I said, it's kind of annoying in a way. I, I'm sure I annoy my band with, with the, that kind of level of, uh, you know, affection. But I can't turn it off, you know. It's like I'm I'm always wanting to make it a little bit better, and that probably maybe that's why we've been doing it for this long. Is that we're not just going through the motions; we're always trying to like make it a little better each time. Right. You didn't just create it and go. Well, here's what we are, and right. this is going to be just rinse and repeat every show. Right. Right. Yeah. But I I think you're right. I I think that that those kind of things do make the difference, and and you know I think it's just also part of who you are. You're just that guy that always wants to give a little bit more and. When you think you've given everything you have, you go, well, wait a minute, though. Maybe there's mm-hmm. something else I can do. And I totally get that. I totally do. Yeah. Uh, and I want to talk to you about drummers and what you mentioned earlier about live drummers in a second. But uh, before we do that, you sent us over a clip of, uh, of one of my favorite 80s singers. And I think that when I first heard you sing this, I was really glad that you picked this because I think that your voice is very suited to Billy Idol. And... Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's, you just got that right sound for, for somebody to cover. And uh, we're going to play that now. And this is Dancing With Myself from that 80s band. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, if there, if there was somebody, if you came to me before you started this band and you said, you know, I'm thinking about doing this, what kind of songs do you think I should do? I can't imagine anybody but Billy Idol would have been the first person out of my mouth for you. That's awesome, man. Thank you. I mean, he's, he's an icon. And, you know, the, the thing about doing a, a cover band is, um, so, you, you know, don't ever get too full of yourself. I mean, you're playing covers. We didn't write any of these songs, but we also treat them with the respect that they deserve. You know, like these are, these are like the biggest of the big. And if you get to like Billy Idol, I mean, who's, who's cooler than that guy? So yeah. that's a, a huge uh, compliment to hear you say that, man. That guy's awesome. Yeah, he really is. And, and, you know, actually one of my favorite songs featuring bass was Eyes Without a Face. I just love oh, yeah. how the, the bass drives that song and it's such a cool line. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so you had mentioned that when you first started this, you had programmed the drums and, and that, that people weren't really receptive to that. This past summer, 
uh, going into early fall, they, they do the end of the 80s tour here in, in Vegas, and it's when most of the bands are actually able to show up. They do these short tours with five or six bands, will do shows around the country, but the, the uh, final show, the big show of that tour is here in Vegas, and I was able to see it this year. It's called Lost 80s Live, and mm-hmm. I got to see Berlin, uh, I got to see Missing Persons, A Flock of Seagulls, you know, all these bands came back and played. And wow. what was really interesting about it was that a lot of them were just a keyboardist and a singer. Mm-hmm. And it felt very off to me. There was a, the music is there, the sound is there, but there's a lack of caring about seeing a band live if there's not a band to see live. Right, right. Well, what was weird is that they didn't stack the bands in an order of progression that would have said, okay, we're going to start with all the two-piece bands first. And then mm-hmm. once we add a drummer, all the rest of the bands will have a drummer. It was, you know, two bands would play, Bow Wow Wow came out, played I Want Candy, and that was it. And then the mm-hmm. next band came out, had a drummer, and then the band after that was just a singer and a keyboard player again. So it was like up and down in energy all day. It was the weirdest show I've ever been to. And it was a, 13 hours, I think. Holy cow. Yeah, it was 18 bands and 13-hour show. Yeah. It was insane. Wow, that's a long show. But I definitely see what you're saying about that because, yeah, I mean, when you go, when you, if you're going to go to see a live band, you want to see a band. I could sit home and listen to program music. What's the point of going to the show? Right. Well, yeah, I, and it, it's a it's a balancing act for sure. And whatever somebody thinks is what they think, that's fine. You know, that's that's some of the things that I've learned. You know, we have people because we we sequence a lot of our stuff because the '80s bands that we're covering. They sequenced a lot of their stuff, so in a way, we're being authentic. And if if anybody's like, "Oh, they're they're sequencing it because they can't play it," I'm like, "Man, dude, you don't even know how much time I spent playing bass." But we, you know, if we're doing a, a, a 80 synth song where they didn't even have a bass player, what do you do? You know, like right. you, I think you're more authentic doing what they did. But I think your point is is taken that you know uh, people expect a, a little bit of of a band if you're going to the live experience. I, I don't even want to mention the band that I saw. We cover them, but I, I saw them on a the video. It was the saddest thing I've ever seen because it was just like a keyboard and the singer and the keyboard was like push the button and that's all they did. There was nothing. And it was just phoning it in, you know? Yeah, I mean, you only have two people on stage and one of them's not even playing. <laughs> right. You know, like that was just... I know. Like, why are you here? And I'm, I'm a little uh, cautious... I don't like to criticize uh, other bands, really. Like, if you notice, like, the newer bands, and, dude, you see it all the time because you're in Vegas. You guys get all the really big shows. You know, it's the, the production. If you go, I, I don't know. I'm just picking out of the air. Britney Spears. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a tremendous amount of production and lights and dancing. And, uh, it's more than just, like, the the guitar and the bass, you know, sometimes, right. you know, you're going to have those guys with their arms crossed, but dude, it's not easy to entertain people. I mean, even if you have everything at your disposal, it's tough to entertain people for a couple of hours. So I think people that are able to successfully do it, man, my, uh, my hat's off to them. I think it's, it's difficult to entertain people for a couple of minutes these days. I mean, the yeah. attention yeah. span is just, it's just not there anymore. But, and, right. and I don't, I don't mean to put down the bands from the eighties because the thing is, is that you have to remember the context. That's how music was performed at that time. So as mm-hmm. they're performing it now, they're performing it now as they did then. And that, right. I mean, I, I respect the authenticity of that, 
But in yeah. today's world, what I'm trying to say is that in today's world, it doesn't work the way that they did it back then. Right. And, and you know, Scott, there's there are people that are phoning it in and, and that they don't have any um, – they're not excited about it. They're just mm-hmm. there to, to be there. Yeah. And then there's the people that do it so great. And I'll just tell you very quickly. So these bands that I listen to, a lot of them are on their last tour or, or they're close. Mm-hmm. So I'm, even though I do a hundred shows a year and I never get to go to concerts, I've been trying to make a point to go see some people. And I went and saw Ozzy Osbourne. Mm-hmm. Man, awesome. Just like he has so many great songs. I loved it. I saw Judas Priest, Rob Halford, incredible. I saw Bruce Springsteen, unbelievable. He's like 67 years old. So yeah. if you're good and you have passion, man, you, you know, it's it's very encouraging to see this. Uh, these, that there's so many great people out there. And then there's people who've seen that, you know, not as good. And uh, so it's, it's a lot of it depends on your passion. Well, keep an eye out for it this summer. I'm, I haven't seen the whole tour list, so I don't know if they're coming to Denver or not, or if you'll probably be playing that night. But uh, I know that in, uh, I think it's August? June, it's June 9th, I think. Uh, Judas Priest and Uriah Heep are playing here in Vegas. So I would imagine that they're yeah. doing some kind of, at least a small West Coast tour, if nothing more. But uh, the thing is now, you know, the bands that we grew up with, uh, you know, they're, they're starting to die off. And uh, right. if you get the chance to see somebody, God, go get, get out there and go see him before it's too late. Exactly, man. And, and you'd be so mad because Priest came with uh, Deep Purple when they came to Denver. Yeah, I saw them uh, last year. They were here. It was Edgar Winter, Alice Cooper, and Deep Purple. Wow. And when they came on this tour with Judas Priest, they did not stop in Vegas. And I was bummed because I couldn't get to the L.A. show. Uh, right. Yeah, so I'm, I'm hoping they're going to come around again. But, you know, th- this is their last long goodbye tour is what they're calling it. So right. we'll see. But, yeah, that had to have been a great bill. Before we wrap things up, I, I want to talk to you about one other thing, and I feel bad because I haven't gotten a chance to see this yet, but you and Amy from that 80s band were featured on a television show. How did that come about? <laughs> That's right. Yes, uh, we were on a show called House Hunters, which um, is this very, very popular show on HGTV. Like, I actually didn't realize how big it was. So I've watched that show for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. And it's a great show. So basically, it's, it's, it follows people who are buying a home, and they, they show three homes, and then they pick one. And as as an audience member, I guess people have fun trying to guess which one they're going to buy. So anyway, we, we decided to move. I've always had this kind of dream to have some property. So um, we, we we moved, and I, I go, you know what, man? This isn't something I do that often. I don't move that much. Let me... Let me see what the process is of, of, of applying for this show. So I sent them um, a fill-out form, and then I didn't hear anything. And then a few weeks later, they wrote back, and they go, hey, this, this is cool. You know, you're in a band. This might be a nice angle, and the house that you're going to get sounds interesting. So we did um, a couple of Skype auditions, mm-hmm. and then they, they called up, and they go, hey, you got the gig, man. Uh, we're sending out a production crew from LA. Uh, they're going to be here for these five days. And it was like, it became very, very real. And so we did it. And in this really quick, the way that they do this show is you have to have already bought a house because they don't want to send a crew out and then have you change your mind and not buy anything because it costs a lot of money to get the people out here. Sure, yeah. So we bought a house and basically they interview you on day one, day two, day three, day four. You look at a house each day. And day five, you bought the house and you move in. So uh, we did this, and 
I didn't know what to expect, man. But Scott, I'm telling you, even though the band's been pretty successful here uh, in Denver, we got more exposure in one night on this show than 16 years of doing gigs. It was it's nuts. Like three or so million people saw the episode. Mm-hmm. Our website blew up. We got. I mean, we still have people come up to us. Hey, we're not house hunters. So it's like, wow. that, maybe that's the key. If you want to do a band, you can get on, on a national TV show because that's a uh, big time exposure. Well, you know, and I think that's part of it is getting tied into something else. Like I, I have some friends that do uh, like video game streaming and things like that. And they're like, yeah, you know, I got like a couple hundred people that follow me and sometimes they give me gifts and, and you know, it's money or coins or whatever for the games. And, and that's cool. But like, I look at these other people that have 150,000 people following them and that's literally their profession is sitting there playing games and live streaming it. And, right. Uh, yeah. You know, so like you, you kind of go from starting off and building like a little bit of a name for yourself and then you start doing takeovers for their channel and you start getting in with them and you start like kind of sponging their fans a little bit. And right. it, it's kind of the same thing. Like, yeah, you're going to have a certain element of exposure for people that are specifically interested in either your geographical area, area or what you're doing. But mm-hmm. to branch out, like, you know, maybe you can have something go viral on YouTube if you do a song that people just really love and it happens to get noticed. But, like, that's yeah. kind of the key is, is, is going for opportunities. And I think yeah. that's really kind of like the moral of the Travis story is that you, you've never just sat back and said... I'm just going to wait for something to come to me. Like you've always been the aggressive one and said, all right, that didn't work. What else can I do? What can I change? What can I try next? And right. that's what I think has brought about this level of success for you is that you, you just don't sit back and wait. You don't like throw up a YouTube video and go, okay, people are going to watch it. I'm going to be famous. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It takes a lot more than that. That's for sure, man. Well, that's very nice of you to say, um, you know, that, the, the 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 TV thing was like in a way something I just wanted to do just to do, yeah. and uh, and the, the fact that the band got to be uh, you know cross promoted was awesome. You know I was very nervous because I, I don't know if you've ever watched that show, but like they sometimes make people look kind of like jerks, and yeah. and they could have made. I mean I was really careful not to say anything that could be like spliced in that would make me look bad, but you never know because they shoot forty hours of, uh, of video for a twenty one minute show. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, man, I hope the band's on there, and I hope they make this look like the nice, nice people. And I was pretty pleased with the way it turned out. So it was cool, man. It was like definitely one of those experiences, once-in-a-lifetime experiences that like, I'm really glad we did. Well, that's the thing, man. You, when you have opportunity, you got to go for it. Like I shot um, one day when they were making Jason Bourne because they shot a good majority of that movie here in Vegas. And yeah. uh, I just saw an ad on Facebook that they were looking for extras. And I remember when I first moved to Colorado, they were shooting Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade down mm-hmm. near, I think it was somewhere near Royal Gorge. And I was only 15. I wasn't driving. I didn't have a car. So I couldn't get down there. And I didn't know anybody in town yet because we had just moved. So I, I always felt a little bit bad that I missed on that opportunity. And when I saw the Jason Bourne thing, I thought, how do I not go? You know, how do you not right. take it? Those things don't come around every day. You don't buy a house every day. Yeah, 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 and, and I'm sure that was a cool experience to kind of see how it all comes together. It was, and and I actually did make it into the trailer and then into the movie a couple times, uh, oh, which was awesome. cool. But it was, I mean, it's like I'm in a crowd of 1,500 people, so unless you know where to look, you know, you're not going to pick me out. But it was, it was just more of the experience, like just being there and, and seeing what that experience was like, and it was, it was pretty incredible. So 
I'm really glad that you you thought of that and that you followed through and that they. I mean, how do they not take Travis on the show? Like, you're such a cool guy, and then you've got the band, and then Amy's really cool. Like, I don't know how they wouldn't have picked you. Well, that's very nice of you to say, and, and Amy loves you. Uh, it's you know, but, but thank you for saying the nice things. And you know, I know you're wrapping this up here. I, I'll I'll say one thing. One of the the best things about uh, what I've been able to do musically is I've met a lot of people over time that I would have never met before, and yeah. they've become very important people in my life. And Scott, you are somebody that I have the most respect for. You are a, such a nice person. You're such a talented, caring, you're like just the best, the best, a lifelong friend. And, um, I wouldn't have met you without music. And I'm just really blessed that I'm, I'm a friend of yours. And that's music, man. That's the beauty of it. Oh man. Well, thank you so much. And, and I, I can't even express how mutual that is. And, what I what I love about having a friend like you, you know, over these like almost what we're going on like thirty years now, and oh my God, we're old. Um, but, but you know, when you, when you look back, and there's been gaps, like there's there's been like a ten year period where you and I just haven't seen each other. I mean, we've kept in touch, but there's a there's a difference between seeing someone in person and an email or a text or whatever. And yeah. when I saw you when when you and Amy came up, because you guys were playing a show up here, a private corporate party. And it was like, like, like you opened the door and it was like no time had passed at all. Like yeah. I just saw you the, the other day. And exactly. That's, that's real friends. That's like family, you know, right there. And I've, yeah. I've got to tell you, man, like, like I've always had the greatest respect for you as a musician. I was very intimidated the first time I saw you guys at Salem Spade because I had just gotten the gig with Joker's Wild and we had a show to play in two weeks from the day I joined. And so, you know, when you're doing technical music like that, that's a lot to learn in a short period of time. And oh, yeah. my brother knew Scott. That's how I met him. And he invited us over to, to your practice place, which was a storage shed in mm -hmm. Colorado Springs. And I watched you guys play, and I'm like, I can't do this. Like, this is so far beyond my skill level. I don't have <laughs> any business being doing this. And then I started thinking about it. I'm like, you know what, though? If Scott can figure out how to play like that, he's just a guy. I can figure out how right. to play like that, and I can do it my own way. You know, not necessarily better, but just different. And right. uh, and that actually kind of drove me. And I think that's why I was able to get through that first gig because uh, I, I really pushed myself to learn and and really see what I could do. And I have to yeah. thank the the whole band for that because without you guys playing to the level that you were. I don't know that I would have pushed myself to, to get to that level myself. Right. You know, well, that's good to hear, man. There's always those people, you know, I've, I've had those kind of situations, just like you explained, it's, it's, there's always somebody out there doing something you can learn about and, and make yourself better. So that, that's kind of cool. Exactly. Well, thanks so much, man. It's been such a great time talking to you and, and, you know, remembering all those old times and seeing how great you're doing now. I mean, I can't, I can't possibly be any happier for you. Well, thank you, buddy. I'm same thing to you. You're a fantastic uh, musician and entrepreneur. I'm, I'm glad that you're doing so well. Uh, we're going to come see you in Vegas as soon as possible, and we'll, we'll continue this, man. But thank you for having me on your podcast. This is a big honor, and uh, the time flew by. Thank you very much. Definitely, and, and best of luck to you guys for, for many years of continued success. You guys have a really special thing going on. If anybody that's listening to this is ever in the Denver area, Go look up the, that 80s band. I'm going to have all the links posted in the show notes. 
a fantastic band to see. Even if you don't, like, even if you're not a huge fan of 80s music, these guys will make it fun, I promise. Thank you, Travis. Best of luck to you, my friend. Thank you. Take care, buddy. You too. Yeah, what a great guy. I'm, I'm just so happy that we've kept in touch over the years. And, uh, you know, it's it, he's one of those people, like, when you find a great person like that in your life, you just make sure that you keep him around. So that's today's episode. And uh, remember to put some comments in, do a star rating on the show. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do subscribe. Uh, there's a couple different places where you can do that. You can do it through iTunes. You can do it through the Podbean app. Uh, and pretty soon, we'll uh, still working on getting that fixed on my website totally my fault uh, I've just been dragging doing other things instead of taking care of that little little detail right there so thanks guys and keep listening and please share let everyone know that there's this podcast if you like it and we'll see you guys next week <laughs>